0: Today our guest is here to discuss his new book, Hybrid Warfare, The Russian Approach to Strategic Competition and Conventional Military Conflict and how it applies to global events. Therefore, he wanted to let the audience know that the comments in this interview are his own and do not reflect any other organization or affiliations that he might be a part of. So now on with the show. Welcome to the 1CA Podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with a partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassos.org. I'll have those in the show notes.
1: They've always been prying a crowbar into fissures between the Greek European powers and frustrating their political process for centuries, specifically to make sure that there's never going to be a coalition that's actually strong enough to march east towards Russia.
0: Today, we welcome back Curtis Fox, author of Hybrid Warfare, The Russian Approach to Strategic Competition and Conventional Military Conflict, which is hot off the presses and in stores now. We discuss the book's concepts and how they apply to current events. This is part two, so if you have not heard the first half, I recommend checking it out first. But either way, enjoy the show.
1: I hear people continuously trying to distinguish between Hamas and the people of Gaza. And fair enough, There are good people and bad people in the world, and because an oligarchy running that segment of the world decides to commit an atrocity doesn't mean it had the buy-in of every man, woman, and child in Gaza. The flip side of that coin is that we were moving in every way possible to try to recognize Hamas as the legitimate governing body of the Gaza Strip. And we would have demanded that the Israelis negotiate with them for any sort of a two-state solution. Right. So, if that's the representative body of the people of Gaza that we would expect the Israelis to negotiate with, and that is the body that conducted the October 7th massacre, then how do we draw this conclusion that these aren't the same?
0: Okay. So, you see it as Israel has tried to work with them as a governing body, Or do you see it as Israel has ignored them as a governing body and it's caused a conflict?
1: The short answer is both. People tend to say it's extremely complicated because then they're not required to go into the details. They can just state the two-dimensional moral solution that they have that really is aligned with their politics. And the the problem is it is extremely complicated. But if
0: if you work through the complications, you can actually find points of solutions.
1: Yeah, I would say the core anchor point of this is two things. The first is that the Gaza Strip was manipulated by the Arab states around them for the better part of 80 years. in this permanent resistance against Israel, right up until Iran became a credible regional threat. And you could argue that that was when Saddam Hussein was deposed. And so the Israelis came to the negotiating table and offered a two-state solution five times. 1936 was the proposed partition from the UK, where the people that we refer to as Palestinians now would have gotten 80% of the land in the region. Then there was a partition in 1947 proposed by the UN that would have been 50-50. And then the Israelis themselves, actually, after the Yom Kippur War, they thought about setting up a two-state solution on their own. And that stopped the moment that the Arabs came out with their no negotiation, no recognition, no peace. And then there was the 1993 Accords at Camp David, and then there was the Oslo Accords, where it was put on the table twice. And then the Israelis unilaterally withdrew from the Gaza Strip in 2006, and they offered, again, a two-state solution on their own which wasn't accepted. And the reason it wasn't accepted was because all of the regional Arab states all insisted that they hold out for a better deal, which was essentially a future without Israel. Then Iran became a threat. And so these people, for them, nothing has changed. But now they're realizing that they've passed up every deal and offer that they've been given. And now they have no diplomatic leverage because all their allies have abandoned them. The only thing that can happen now is it's a horror show you know, by my definition of hybrid warfare, I think Iran very much follows the Russian recipe in a certain sense. The big difference is that the Russians, they are looking for the same things as the Iranians for a pseudo failed state that has a really weak governing apparatus that they can corrupt and convert towards their purposes. And that's the first step is can we bribe the political class and then can we give them enough economic incentive to tie themselves to Russia irrevocably? For the Iranians, what they're looking for is the religious ties. They're looking for countries that have a strong Shiite population, and they're looking for individuals within that Shiite population that are willing to work with Iran. A failed state like Lebanon or Yemen are good candidates for that. The Shia coalition in Iraq are really good candidates for that. And the sponsorship they have for Iraqi militias has the added component uh, that Ar- Iraq has that certainly was under Saddam Hussein. And so they, they want to be able to control Iraq in a certain sense. But the Iranians are much more keen to use local insurgency, whereas with the Russians, that's a means to an end to accomplish their means. But if the insurgency is struggling, they will almost certainly be willing to surge hard power assets from the Ministry of Defense end. That was the war in Donbass, in a nutshell. They basically waged what we would call an unconventional war. They created an insurgency from the ground up, and then they expected that insurgency to be able to stand and fight against the Ukrainian armed forces, and they were collapsing. The Ukrainians were closing in on Donetsk and Luhansk very rapidly, and then the Russians surged in heavy ground forces to push the Ukrainians back. And they did. They routed the Ukrainians and, and established basically a strategic buffer stone in what we would consider the Donbass region. The Iranians can't push hard power out of Persia. They're trapped in by mountains, and they, they can't really push out hard power. It's, it's one of their paradoxes. But they can create insurgencies and trap in regional rivals like Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Lebanon, Yemen, Syria. The Arab Muslims in Gaza are Sunni, and so the Iranians see them as apostates, but they're useful apostates.
0: But I also see Russia exporting the strategy. It seems like Iran is pulling strings for the Houthis to do upper-level trade-style operations, and they've got Hezbollah doing some forms of operations in support of Hamas. To me, it seems like the Russian style of hybrid warfare has been exported to demonstrate almost a black mirror to the U.S. goals of peace, stability, and trade by creating conditions that are always unstable, are always right at a low level of conflict that allow for a lot of criminality. And that opens that country or region up to influence and our oligarchs taking advantage of resources and having a strong man in power. It seems like That notion has been exported.
1: Yeah. The best case scenario here with the Houthis is that the more Iran becomes a threat to Saudi Arabia and the more the Houthis create a headache for Saudi Arabia, the more they're going to look for new partners. And they've they've been sharing intelligence and coordinating with the Israelis for years. But it could be that there is an Israeli-led pan-Arab counter-Iranian alliance that is going to emerge in the Middle East. That would be the counter leverage the Saudis might need for for something like this. And the Israelis would be able to teach them how to deal with a frustrating little segment uh, like the Houthis that are jeopardizing oil production.
0: And that level of threat might actually create conditions for Iran to mellow out.
1: And I tell you what, the Israelis could definitely use Saudi investment capital.
0: Now, your one example with Syria and the Wagner group, charging against the special forces camp one thing that you brought up and that is that the response was obvious and painful does that mean that when we see hybrid operations going on not only do we have to counter the operation but we have to kind of embarrass the russians for doing it
1: i think embarrassing them is politically useful i'm not sure that it's really necessary to counter hybrid warfare thing i would just say is is they have to be confronted directly point of hybrid warfare is its very, very meek kinetic force. I mean, you're talking about a handful of special operations and light infantry units that are trying to seize key terrain. And if you confront them in any meaningful way with a sizable force, they will shatter. But you have to confront them directly and decisively. That's the recipe for defeating hybrid warfare. The Russo-Ukrainian War was intended to be a hybrid war by Moscow. The buildup of conventional forces on the border threatened the Ukrainian government into compliance with Moscow's directives. There was the clear saber rattling for anybody, any Westerners that would dare offend Moscow. They even conducted false flag operations to try to create propaganda that the Ukrainian government was doing ethnic cleansing that was exposed. So the one piece that really didn't happen was they didn't start pushing Spetsnaz forces into Ukraine to prepare the operational environment. And the reason was because the Kremlin was trying to maintain this really, really extreme OPSEC over the operation. The other reason was because the GRU wasn't involved in the planning process. It was done by the FSB, which is basically a a secret police intelligence service, like the KGB before it. And the best guess we have is that after the assassination attempt on Sergei Skripal, you know you remember this back in was it 2017 or 2018? Two GRU agents got off a plane in London, took a train to Salisbury in the UK. They found this turncoat that the British British intelligence had gotten. He was living happily in the UK with his daughter, and they smeared nerve agent on his door. A number of British citizens died. But these two idiots were identified by MI5 so quickly, it made my head spin. The British had everything. They had their entire route. They had them identified both their covert passports, revealing their real identities, and then their fake passports. And they had their entire mission history. When this was released to Europe, the European governments collectively expelled over 150 Russian diplomatic personnel who were probably all actually intelligence operatives. And then I think the United States followed a little bit later with another 50. So with 200 senior intelligence and diplomatic personnel being expelled from their missions abroad, the director of GRU, Igor Korobov, I think in September, he went into the, the Kremlin for an intense dressing down by Vladimir Putin, and he died of stress in his home in October or November. <laughs>
0: like so many people tied to their chair. Yeah, I've never known if that was
1: because he was tied to a chair and pushed into a lake and that was that stress or maybe it was the stress of a, of a bullet behind the ear or what. <laughs> to Moscow, was incalculable. The GRU, even though it's Russia's most important intelligence service, it's certainly the largest and the most capable. They were removed from the planning process in Ukraine and this was handed off to the FSB who the senior leadership in Moscow trusts more. Now, two weeks after this campaign was initiated, the director of the fifth directorate in the FSB was placed under arrest. And the charges on him seem to indicate that Moscow believed he was enriching himself out of his own covert operations budget. And he was feeding the Kremlin fabricated intelligence. And these guys were supposed to be providing the intelligence package ostensibly to the Russian general staff for how to invade Ukraine. And they were telling everybody that the Ukrainians are very pro-Russian and our people are going to be welcomed as liberators. The general staff planning this campaign, they thought they had 10 days. Right. Most of the units that were sent to the Ukrainian border, both in Belarus and in the Donbas region, were given a planning scheme from, from the general staff along those lines. And there's hundreds of stories of VDV paratroopers getting on their IL-76 transport planes and then being told once they were off the ground that, actually, you're going to war. We're going to drop you into Ukraine. Their officers might not have even been briefed on what their objectives were until they were on the plane, which means none of the tactical planning that needed to happen for this war to be successful happened. They went to war with insufficient ammunition stockpiled, insufficient fuel stockpiled, and insufficient everything stockpiled, and the, the logistics were a nightmare. And they lost on every major front, simply because they weren't prepared for combat. It seems to be that the Kremlin didn't release the decision to invade Ukraine right up to the actual event, and then no one was told about it except senior leadership. and they just thought that they could do that and that this would work they tried to conduct a hybrid war but it's a failed hybrid war when the narrative is implausible and when it's not executed quickly enough it devolves into a clash of the titans which is exactly what happened you know the late battles in donbass in the winter of 2014 to 2015
0: right well here's a question for you could they muster a credible threat against europe because i was just talking to yeah um,
1: yeah so it's, they it's possible it's hard to know what information the Kremlin is listening to.
0: Okay. Because I was talking to Albert Augustine of 5th Corps, and it seems that the Army is going towards more large division-on-division type of training. And I, I was asking, who would they fight? But you believe that that actual 600,000 military force could actually become a viable threat to Europe.
1: Just to give you a thought here, The army that invaded Ukraine in February of 2022 was a little over 200,000 men. The army that's in that region now is over 600,000. If you look at what our NATO allies can actually put in the field, the Germans can put maybe a single mechanized brigade in the field within their own borders in about a month. It would take them a month to mobilize. The French can put maybe a brigade in the field within a month if you give them maybe six months, they could actually surge that up to a division. It's unclear how they would support that division from the other side of Europe. The Brits can probably you know, put a brigade in the field in Eastern Europe about at the same time frame that the, the French and the Germans can. The Poles are seeing what's happening, and they are absolutely determined never to be dominated by an outside power again. And so they started with an army that could field four divisions. And they're trying to scale that up to six divisions. And, and they're much smaller than Germany or France or the UK. But the thing to emphasize here is that in a conventional war with Russia, the Europeans are so grossly outgunned. It's beyond funny. It, it's hopeless. The only way that Europe does not start speaking Russian tomorrow is because the Russians know that the United States can surge forces into Europe very quickly. And that's what balances the equation.
0: And that's 500 pages to get to that point.
1: (laughs) uh, Hey man, it's, it's fun. Uh, I, you know, some of these I've done, it turns into a lecture and it was fun to have a conversation and I I never really knew where we were going to end up sometimes. And that was kind of fun not to be married to the script.
0: Yeah. Excellent.
1: Well, I tell you what, man, I'm also happy to help the CA community here a little bit. I'm very well aware that the 95th Civil Affairs Brigade gets shit on regularly in USASOC, and I'm happy to engage with you guys and and help spread the word a little bit about the good work you do.
0: You know, it's funny, I was just arguing that USASOCAPOC needs to take the 95th and create an active duty element within use of K-POC. make it a both a hybrid command where it has active duty and reserves and it's an interesting idea and start just running ca as its own element versus a tight end soft
1: and i was an 18 charlie too i had some ca guys actually go through parts of the charlie course with me i was talking to them a little bit about it, like how you actually develop your people and i was finding out that like some of these guys actually go to like business school that the ninety fifth has arrangements with a number of elite business schools in the United States for training their soldiers, and it's it's pretty sweet.
0: Yeah, and the CA community are they're all usually with masters or doctorates, and they are usually traveling the world. So I can't talk down.
1: That's exactly right, and uh, I hundred percent agree. And I might even go further than you, and I'd say the fact that we stuck on the back end is a facet of how it is that we actually develop our general officers. And the Army prioritizes tactical excellence, and they keep their top performers as close to the tactical edge as possible as they move up through the command structure. And it's the people that they don't really know what to do with that get pushed to other places for broadening
0: experiences. Right. That's half my career. (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a home for civil affairs outside of, of SOF. And I think that civil affairs should create a, a functional specialty that focuses on post-work stabilization and reconstruction. Yeah. I was just listening to Petraeus, and he was discussing how when he was in Iraq, he was listening to the to the plans for the campaign. And he's like, well, where's the post-conflict stabilization and reconstruction plan? And they're just kind of waved him off. And he's like, well, it's kind of important. And I've heard other people say the same thing. What, what does Charlie Wilson say? That we suck at the end game? <laughs> but that's a market gap. That's a market cap that civil affairs, if they were to go to the 59 school and become planners and focus just on the post-conflict operations and stabilization, it would actually create value that the CA component would then build out.
1: For sure, man. They really wanted to solve this issue be a requirement that, okay, we're going to actually take our best and brightest and we're going to send them abroad and they're going to do like FAO work. You know, my God, let's stop sending people to Harvard and let's start sending them abroad to learn foreign languages and, you know, embed themselves in the Colombian army. And They should be doing this civil affairs mission as a component of career development.
0: Right. You know, uh, it's one thing that I've learned to respect about Peace Corps is that they send their people out and it's their force of personality that helps them survive and i think that if we had that same notion to where we are training people in blunt force but if we had them do foreign missions where they just had to survive off their wits and their ability to build relations that would shift the the thinking from tactical to relational conflict management as well as how to go past force management to how do we build partners and allies so that they can also be with us in achieving a foreign policy objective. Yeah. So anyway, we're we're gunning down two hours, so I'm gonna let you go.
1: All
0: right, right. I appreciate it, Chris. (laughs) Today's music is from the Disney film Coco, and is a tribute to Anna Ophelia Mergua, who I once met in San Diego at a film festival. Anna passed away this week at age ninety. And so I wanted to give her a tribute through the music. So see you next week. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have the email and CA Association website in the show notes. And now, most importantly, to those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations. Thank you all for what you're doing. This is Jack, your host. Stay tuned for more great episodes. 1CA Podcast.